there was a moment in time where my mom, who was retired at the time, she'd retired from her career in computer science, came down to my computer in the basement at three in the morning and said, you have to go to bed. And I said, well, I have this thing that I need to get done by tomorrow. She's like, tell your customer that your mom said it's okay, that it's not going to be done. And you're how old at this point that she's telling you this? I don't know, 30 years old. From Twin Cities Business, this is By All Means, a show about innovation, drive, and purpose, and the leaders who make business work in Minnesota. I'm Allison Kaplan, your host and editor-in-chief of Twin Cities Business Magazine. We're coming to you from the studios of our presenting sponsor, the University of St. Thomas's Opus College of Business, serving more than 3,000 students enrolled in its undergraduate and graduate business programs. The college develops effective, principled business leaders who think globally and act ethically. And now, by all means. When you start asking investors and leaders in the tech community who they have their eye on, and I for one do ask that question a lot, one name comes up again and again, Sonny Han. He's the founder and CEO of Fulcrum, a software as a service platform to help manufacturers optimize sales, purchasing, job scheduling, tracking, and fulfillment. No, it's not as sexy as a self-driving car or as tangible as a beloved coffee brand. But if building a successful business is all about solving a problem, Sunny hit upon one that no one seemed to be addressing. Manufacturing is a multi-trillion dollar industry, and Sunny estimates that as many as 12 million manufacturers are using outdated software. Fulcrum could help the industry take a giant leap forward. And that's why investors are lining up. Fulcrum raised just over $3 million in 2020 to expand its platform, which also means growing its team. Of the 20 new employees hired in recent months, Fulcrum managed to increase gender diversity from 19% to more than 40% women on the team. Of course, Sonny comes by it rightly. His mom was a pioneer in computer sciences, working at tech startups and then controlled data at a time when she was, more often than not, the only woman in the room. You grew up in Minnesota, right? I did. I moved here because both my parents went to school here. My dad studied civil engineering. My mom studied computer science. And in the late 80s, Minnesota was one of the spots in the country for computer science. We had Cray Research here. We had Control Data. We had IBM in Rochester. We had um, you know, Seagate and uh, 3M doing stuff that spun off to automation. So this was kind of one of the spots to be. And obviously, there's a lot of need for pavement science and pothole fixing and, um, you know, highway longevity. So it was like the perfect spot for both of them. And they were poor graduate students. My mom was a, a waitress while she was studying computer science. And I hung out at the soil lab and the computer lab as kind of my de facto daycare back in those days. and huh. Learned a lot. So did you grow up with computers? I mean, was that always part of your life? Did you always have whatever the latest was, the, the big computers that took up an entire room? or? <laughs> um, not, not that type. I mean, when I first came, when, I, when we moved here, we had a one bedroom on um, like married campus housing, like the, the Como co-op area. And it was my bed, my parents' bed right next to me and a computer. So like at the foot of my bed, even as a four-year-old, I had a, an, an IBM Tandy uh, that I, I played around with. And w- even though my parents slept in the same room, sometimes I would like wake up in the middle of the night and go play around on the computer, even though they were asleep. So, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I've, I've always been around computers. I, I never really thought that it was anything special, but that was definitely part of my life. 
And did your parents kind of instill an, an importance for you in studying science and engineering? I mean, was that a, a big part of your childhood? Did you know you were interested in that career-wise? I mean, I wasn't thinking about a career as a kid. I, I do remember when I was like six years old or something like that, I had already memorized multiplication tables and um, I went like I was studying some of my parents' textbooks and just didn't understand any of it, just like reading randomly, right? Um, I was learning to read English at the time too, like Clifford, but then also, you know, the C programming language, like those are the books that were around the house. And this is like an emotional thing, but it wasn't until recently that I looked back at some of the stuff that they bought for me. They bought me this like course on tapes. It came in a big plastic booklet and it had like eight tapes in it and a bunch of books. And it was like a, a nice man teaching me algebra and geometry. <laughs> and I, I found the receipt for that. And it was like $400 paid over the course of like a whole year. And knowing how little money that they had, it was like a really big expenditure that they made for me. So at the time, I definitely didn't appreciate how much the resources they spent on helping me advance my brain as much as possible. Um, hmm. But in retrospect, like you, I can like feel how painful it must have been to like basically not have any disposable income for a few months yeah. to allow me to get these math tapes right. So kind of yeah, weird. that's really sweet. Um, and what was it like for your mom? I mean, we we talk even today about the despair, the gender disparities in um, in the world of technology and the importance of, you know, kind of making room for women. Your mom was in it in the 80s. Yeah, I remember going to their office, I think, in Burnsville or somewhere really far south as a little kid. And she was working at a startup uh, basically just a year or so right out of school. And I remember there were there was a, a woman's bathroom and a men's bathroom, and it was like more than a dozen men, and my mom was the only woman there. I remember hearing people jokingly and then kind of seriously asking if she would give up her bathroom. There'd be like more bandwidth for men, and you know, to her credit, she said no, and good for <laughs> her. her bathroom. But that was kind of the climate at the time, right? It didn't seem odd for them to ask, but certainly now we've we've grown as a civilization to the point where that is a weird question to ask now. But, um, but yeah, it was just her. She was the only woman that, that for a long time in most of the tech companies that she worked with. Um, and so I, I think it was, I think a big shift happened when I started growing up, but when she was, when I was a kid and, and she was just starting to work, it was very, very, very male dominated. Yeah. Yeah. Amazing. Um, so by the time you went to college and, and where did you go to college? Did, did you, were you studying computer science? No, uh, I went to Drake in Des Moines and studied chemistry there. Okay. I think there was this, I don't know, it's like teenage hormone-driven rebellion phase where I didn't want to do what my mom did or my dad did. I didn't want to go into medicine. Uh, I just wanted to do my own thing. Journalism was, was one route that, that I almost went down. Poetry and, and, and you know, English literature was, was one route that I almost went down and, and chose chemistry out of um, out of all of them, uh, some due to receiving a scholarship and others just literally not knowing what I wanted to do. So um, most of the problems that I solved in school, most of the cool things and projects that I did ended up leading me back to computer science anyway, writing long for transcripts or uh, trying to automate, you know, data ingestion for certain databases. And that's where my mind went to because that's where I knew. So that was my signal to get back into technology, basically. 
So what, what was one of the first programs you developed or, or cool thing you figured out how to do on your computer? <laughs> we, so we didn't have very much money, and so we couldn't buy video games. And I remember uh, in the computer lab, there was this game uh, that you might know as Nibbles or Snake. Like, it's just a line that as you eat a dot, it gets longer. Mm-hmm. And uh, on our old IBM Tandy, I rewrote that in basic, asking my mom a ton of questions, of course. Um, but I basically recreated the game. It was a, a shoddy version of it, but I, I was like, I think that was my first taste of something from my brain going straight to the computer and becoming something real. Like it wasn't real tangible that I could feel, but now it existed. Right. So there are some technical challenges with just things I didn't understand. And, but, uh, yeah, I think that's really what got me hooked on it, if you will. Yeah. is being able to like conceptualize something and have it come to reality that quickly. Right. So I'm fascinated by how you began conceptualizing what is today Fulcrum. I mean, not just, I mean, there's, there's the developing the software, but there's also just coming up with the idea and figuring out that this was a problem that needed to be solved. So set the scene for us. How did this begin to take shape? From a background standpoint, I grew up in these computer labs here in Minnesota and in Shepherd Lab is where Gopher Internet came to be and then kind of became not so relevant after what we now know as the World Wide Web uh, really took hold. Um, but I, I have vague memories of tape drives being shipped back and forth around the country to we're now just transmitting data throughout the Internet. I, you know, I think my dad is probably the biggest early adopter that exists, even though he isn't. Um, you know, in technology, we had like a cable modem when it first came out. And we had even earlier than that, like the fastest dial-up, um, you know, modems that uh, most people who are listening probably don't even know what that sounds like. But um, <laughs> just having this visceral understanding that things can be connected and then coupling that with stumbling into consulting and, and visiting hundreds of different small manufacturers and and really realizing that we can get closer than we are now to this concept of imagining something and making it come to be, not just for software, but for physical things too. And you know, th- there's this dream of 3D printing and additive manufacturing doing some of that, but really the insight that I got through that process was these manufacturing facilities and people, and they are people. It's a, there's a very human aspect to manufacturing that we miss, right? There are people that know stuff about how to make things and they are not connected in any reasonable or efficient way. So I had friends that had worked, um, you know, when I was in high school and college in finance, in, in, in quantitative analysis, and in writing algorithms to help automate trading and in high-frequency trading. And really the, the idea was, well, what if all of these people were connected and connected in a, in a really automated way? How much faster could we make stuff? And how many things on Kickstarter that are great ideas, but we just can't make them cheap enough and they never really become wide products. How many more of those things could we have? And so that, that's really where the idea started to crystallize. And I, I'm not going to say that it was sharp when it first came into my mind, right? Um, there's that, that scene from Ratatouille where the larger rat is trying to like imagine the flavors and it's like cloudy and murky. And it's not really <laughs> crystallized in their head, but that, that's how it is. And, and over the last five years, we've really started to explore the edges of it and, and found a place for it to grow really well. So that that's kind of the short conceptual story of how everything came to be. So this idea was was brewing in your head. In, were you were you still in school 
or were you working? I mean, what? what I was what, already working. Okay. All right. Mm-hmm. And and were, were you working in technology? Um, no, I was working in, in business consulting. So okay. um, having worked a little bit with larger businesses, I, I tried to find an experience that got me to work with smaller businesses. Um, if you've ever worked in consulting with big businesses, you'll um, you know, maybe realize how much politics there are in large organizations. And there's something refreshing about working with smaller companies that are really just, if they trust you, they're going to do whatever you say. And, and if it works, they're going to be very grateful. So um, I, I spent a, a large portion of my career working directly, meeting with owners of five, 10, $20 million manufacturers. So I see. And during that time when you were, when a, when consultant was your title, do you feel like, I mean, did, did you enjoy that? Was it satisfying? Did you feel like you were searching for the thing, searching for the problem to solve that would allow you to, to be an entrepreneur? I never really understood business. I, 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 uh, I sold a piece of software I wrote when I was, I think, 12, and I got a $500 check for it. I'm pretty sure the person that bought it for me thought I was an adult, <laughs> and I requested the money to be paid to me in rolls of quarters because that's what I could use on vending <laughs> machines and arcade games, right? So like even at a young age, I think I, I, I misunderstood a lot of concepts in business. And I would describe those years in consulting as both being able to be, um, you know, unrelentingly clever about stuff, but also drinking from the fire hose of just learning, learning how businesses transacted, learning how uh, you know, the, the pain of really high fixed costs and when the economy goes down and learning about employees and how to treat them as human and how to motivate them, you know, and, and, and throughout the way, there have been so many different mentors that have taught me different concepts, small ones like, you know, you can't push a string, right? You have to lead people by pulling them to you instead of trying to push them. And I think I learned them young enough when my brain had enough plasticity where I've really let them become part of the fabric of me. So I'm really thankful for all the different people that I met. And I don't think I could have done that, you know, working an analyst job, you know, at, at some large company doing some specific role, right? So. Right. So so you get the exposure to business and you kind of see what's working, what isn't. Meanwhile, your brain is sort of wired to, to, to fix things and create things. And you spot this hole in manufacturing where there's just no seamless modern organization system, the, the, the business side of manufacturing. Am I getting that yeah. at all right? <laughs> yeah. And, and I think that, like, as a consumer, a lot of people take for granted the ability to just connect on LinkedIn, on, uh, on social media. If you know someone or know of someone, you can just search and find them and connect with them and see their posts and their information. That, that experience largely doesn't exist in business, in any sector of business, manufacturing uh, not being super special among it. There, there are certain areas of, of trade that that have some connectivity, but by and large, businesses are not connected with each other. And so for quite some time as a, as a side project on nights and weekends, I try to write these connectors that would try to connect these big business systems. And really what I realized was my job in implementing and fixing problems and writing custom software on top of these big business systems, I was part of the problem. I, I was incentivized to generate billable hours and how you generate billable hours is you do more work. And a lot of that work is very specific to those companies. And really every implementation of these systems is very, very different from each other. So it, it, trying to harmonize all of them is like trying to, to fold together many different types of dough. It just doesn't really work, right? So that's really where the conviction came in is in that I need to create a new fabric 
upon which these companies could be connected. So, um, so I, I would describe. No, I, I'm sorry. Go, you, what were you going to describe? Go ahead, please. I, I, I would characterize the, um, the industry as in manufacturing specifically as the first industry to have adopted technology. Like in the 80s, when, when I was four or five years old, just learning about computers for the first time, most manuf- like manufacturing was a third of the entire software market. Like software hmm. was written for manufacturers. Uh, computer control machines, CNC machines, that's a manufacturing thing that manufacturers adopted that first. And I think the weird thing is that I think they adopted all these technologies first. Everything has changed over the last 20 years with the internet. And we really just haven't seen any of these technologies get back into the gestalt of manufacturing, largely because I think they expect it to be a million dollar, five million dollar endeavor, because that's what it was way back then. And largely, I think it's because they expect it to be a really painful process, because that's where it was back then. And so one of our challenges is just to convince people, hey, there is a better way to do things. And it's fundamentally different than what you might remember or know from the past. Can you give us just one tangible example? What, what is something that you spotted early on that you thought there's got to be an easier, more modern way to do this? Yeah, structurally, for most systems, most business systems, it's a concept of coming up with how you put information in there, what orders there are, how you made something, did you make money on it, things like that. And then storing it in this large digital file cabinet in a database. And then later on, pulling it out and running a report. And the, the, the frustrating part is that so many decisions in business are made in a rearview mirror where you're looking at information from two years ago, three years ago, four years ago, three months ago, two weeks ago. And the world is changing fast enough that that information is getting less and less valuable and less and less sufficient to be able to make good decisions. And I think that the, the real insight was pulling all this data from all of my clients' in, like databases and looking at it. Some of the mistakes that they made could have easily been avoided had they just had access to data faster. So, hmm. be, and, and everywhere else in your life, when you, if you use Mint or if you use um, you know, even TurboTax or any of these products that are, are made for consumers, you have the expectation of getting live data. If you use Robinhood, you want to know what the share price of GameStop is right this minute, right? <laughs> not two years ago, not two months ago, not two weeks ago, not even two days ago. And it's kind of crazy and also scary that businesses, by and large, don't have that level of visibility in how they manage their businesses. So Internally, they don't have it. Internally, yeah, yeah. absolutely. So you're, you know you're on to something. Do you leave the day job to go build this? Or is this a night and weekend, I'm going to build a new software business platform? Oh, there's there's a considerable amount more cowardice built in than that. So, um, what actually happened was I, I thought that I, I I thought there was definitely something here. I didn't know exactly what it was. I didn't even know that it was manufacturing really. I knew it was small business to start, but business in general. And I had planned with uh, some friends, with some colleagues, and just had those weekend had a couple of whiskeys type of conversations, right? Dreaming about what could be. And it actually took me a year and a half to really quit uh, and start the company. I think the biggest moment was I, I took a vacation to Japan for the first time, and I was in this hot spring hotel watching monkeys play with snow and just realizing, I don't know why in that moment it was so magical, but I was just convicted that if I didn't do something, I would get old and die before I accomplished anything and uh, quit my job three weeks later. So Wow. 
And and did you did you know that that was in you? I mean, did did you always kind of think I want to I want to make something, I want to create something, I want to be an entrepreneur? Was that even something that you thought about? Not really. Like I had a couple of opportunities to move out of San Francisco early on, a couple of opportunities to drop out of school and 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 go work at at some friends' companies as they started them. But I don't know why either they didn't interest me, but I I never that was never part of my identity. I was the captain of my math team in high school and and I organized a lot of events for people as a kid. I, I always have this uh, desire to do stuff, I guess, but it never occurred to me to, to start a company until much later in life. I, I don't know why. But for me, like wanting to lead a group of people has more to do with, well, no one else is doing it and I want it to get done. So I step in and, and make it happen more than like it being part of my identity somehow. So so when you made that, that decision, you come back from Japan and you're ready to, to quit, were you, were you married at this point? Mm-hmm. What, yeah, how, I, what did your wife say? She's been very supportive. And we were building a house at the same time, living in my parents' basement. It was a uh, non-ideal situation in general. I mean, it was good because we didn't have a mortgage at that point then as we were living down there. But there was a lot of stuff that was going on. And it was, it was, it was my, my wife just kind of rolled with it. I think even just moving into my parents' basement was something that I expected some pushback on and there wasn't. But She's always been really supportive of all the things that I want to do, more so than I ever could have expected, to the point where I, I probably take it for granted more more often than not now. But it, it, to paint the picture, there was a moment in time where my mom, who was retired at the time, she'd retired from her career in computer science, came down to my computer in the basement at three in the morning and said, you, you have to go to bed. And I said, <laughs> well, I, I have this thing that I need to get done by tomorrow. She's like, tell your customer that your mom said it's okay that it's not going to be done. <laughs> and you're how old at this point that she's mom's I'm, telling you this? I don't know, 30 years old. So. <laughs> Once a mom, always a mom, right? Exactly. Yeah. So it, it was it was it wasn't this like professional like setting that I'd been used to. It was very much a basement story. So So how long did you spend in the basement? How how did how did you start this thing and how long did it take to 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 really make it into a company? For the first year, it was me and a couple of of contractors, essentially, one of which I, uh, you know, spiritually was a a co-founder. But just because of some intellectual property stuff, we organized in a way that he was a contractor and a part-time bookkeeper and a part-time digital marketing person. We did some consulting work. We did some product work. Um, It really wasn't until our second year that I moved into a single desk uh, at Coco downtown, a co-working space. And then I think like three years into it, moved into a larger co-working space at Industrious downtown. And just a year ago, moved into our own office space here, um, in, in downtown Minneapolis in the Baker Center. So, um, it's, it had, it's been kind of like a one-year cadence of, of growing up a little bit, uh, each year at a time. You actually launched to, uh, to the business world. You had, you got your first customers in 2019? Um, late 2018 is when our product really uh, was launched as is. And we, now we had some like beta customers or, you know, custom software customers that had been starting to migrate onto our product. But really like our the website, fulcrumpro.com, has been live to the public since January of 2019. How did it go? I mean, here you are spending, you know, years making this thing. 
Did you know that that you had had nailed it? Did you have enough feedback along the way? Did you know that you were solving problems that needed to be solved for these manufacturers? It's a it's it's kind of a multivariate question, right? Like in the front of it, I knew that we know we knew the value we could deliver that other systems couldn't. In the middle of it, I had some ideas on how it should look, and in the background of it, it needed to be built, right? So how it was built to accommodate that. Um, we made a bunch of mistakes. Uh, how, what we built, we made a bunch of mistakes. Who we wanted to sell to, we made a bunch of mistakes. But really, kind of um, the best way to characterize it is that the, the truth of what we needed to build emerged more than it was decided. Uh, we found it more than you know, we declared it or we predicted it. And it, it's like starting a, a fire from you know, flint and tinder. You, you find that first spark that that, that makes an ember and you just coddle it and, and, and blow air on it until it becomes a fire, right? So that's very much how it felt like was like, holy crap, something's working. Let's, let's really explore why it's working. So, so tell us what, what that is. Tell, paint the picture of, uh, give us kind of the elevator pitch of what Fulcrum is today. I think that the biggest aha moment for our customers is there's just this resistance or this uh, baggage that they carry. Oh, implementing a system is going to be a three-year process. It's going to cost millions of dollars. They say that it's it's only a few thousand dollars in implementation and it, it's going to be just a few months, but we don't believe it. And it, as they see the software and as they start using it, the aha moment is, wait a second, I, I can figure this out myself. And it is designed in a way that is intuitive. And I am getting through this process without somebody being on site or on a Zoom with me for 10 hours a week for, for years at a time. And, and of course, there's bugs and, and there's features that we're missing and things like that. But I think that the excitement of seeing software that looks and works the way they expect based on the consumer experience that they have, I think that's the biggest aha moment. What we have right now is we have our, our minimum feature set complete for a wide variety of different manufacturers. And most products in the past either had to be heavily customized, basically building custom sandbox, uh, sandcastles and sandboxes. Uh, for us, the analogy we use inside is that we've grown this bonsai tree and we've trimmed away things that you don't need. But fundamentally, everything's already really built or we don't have it. And what we do have, we reductively make exactly fit what our customers have. And that's a paradigm shift that is hard to describe. But as they go through the process of customizing it, and implementing it and using it, it just starts to make sense like vis- like viscerally, like subconsciously, right? So that's where we're at right now. There's a lot more we need to build to make it more appealing and more usable by more different kinds of manufacturers. But if I want to connect all these businesses together, it can't just work for a certain type of customer, right? It's got to be able to work for everybody. And it can't be worse than their experience elsewhere, which is a big challenge. How do you make something that is so good for everybody um, and, and do it in a way that you don't uh, you know, kill yourself getting there. So those are the challenges we work with every day. How do we prioritize? How do we design things that are flexible enough that many different types of companies can use it really successfully? And that's kind of where the magic comes in in product development. And whenever we stumble upon one of those things, it, it, it's, it's, I, don't, I don't think we celebrate things enough internally, but those are the things that we celebrate. In the early days, I mean, when it was you and those contractors, I mean, you were literally building this thing. I mean, you, you did a lot of that initial coding yourself? No, um, I don't. 
there's maybe a few ugly SQL queries somewhere in the code base that I wrote <laughs> and maybe a few patches or like changes to some colors and buttons, but by and large, no, I, I've not really been involved in, in writing any of it, which feels fraudulent, but I'm told by, by the people that work here and our investors and everybody else that that is the job I'm supposed to do is to direct, um, direct the traffic and, and, and make sure that I'm setting the culture correctly. Got it. So but, you, you have the vision, you know what's needed, and then you deploy people to, to create that. Yeah. I would say to be more specific, I have two months more vision than everyone else. And I'm always trying to stay two months ahead so that I look like a genius. But uh, the future is always cloudy, right? Um, and, and my job, I think, is to uncloud it as much as possible. Today, you have about how many customers, about how many employees? We have just over 70 customers and 34 employees. And our customer count is, is starting to grow at an appreciable rate. We used, to, we used to pick up one new customer a quarter, and it was one new customer a month. And now it's three new customers a month, and then seven um, last month, and 11 hopefully next month. And, and so the, the pace is quickening, um, which is exciting, but also palm-sweatingly scary a little bit, right? Um, you know, there's this analogy that you're building the car as you're driving it certainly gets scary when you know that your engine is not fully working yet and you're, you've gone from 10 miles an hour to a hundred. Um, but that's what we want, right? Like this is the condition that we want to be at. And, and going back to the technical side of things, I think the company has been, and I have been really, really, um, lucky and, and blessed to have such smart technical talent on the team. Uh, especially since I'm not somebody that writes code full-time ever. So um, all the stuff that's been built has not been really me. And to, at, at some point in time soon, most of the product decisions won't even be me, which is going to be a really weird um, moment that we cross over, but that's just the part of growing up, right? Right. Um, in the early days, were you bootstrapping this? I know that you did uh, take on some some capital fairly recently, and I'm I'm curious about that and when investors entered the picture, and, and was that challenging, raising money? Um, it was. I think that when we first started, it was our vision wasn't really that clear. So I didn't really even seek outside funding. So to pile on, we moved into my parents' basement. I started this business and quit a good-paying job. And then I also put in almost all of my, my life savings with my wife into the business as well. So there's even an added dimension of, of support and, and commitment um, there. But for the first few years, really the bootstrapping came from writing custom ERP systems and doing custom software development. And we learned a lot from that. Uh, and we made some money from that as well. And that's what really funded the product growth early on. But we got into trouble as we were trying to pivot, as we had custom software customers that needed our attention. And then also we were sinking a bunch of money into product development. And those kind of dueling priorities were really not right. But mm. the reason we went down that path was the alternative, if, you, if we did all the math on it, was we'd have to probably lay off 80% of the people that had gotten us to where we got to, to be able to kind of start from scratch with investment money. And the, the kind of grittiness of getting through it and really punching through it was trying to keep the team together, right? Trying to to, to keep the people that had been a part of this journey as, as far along as possible uh, and, and, and keep both of their both the knowledge and also the gratitude for their, their efforts in, uh, into the company. So. so how did you know you were ready to, to go out and, and start talking to investors? I think 
at some point in time, like every morning I take a shower, which seems pretty normal, but in my shower, I mumble to myself for about 10 minutes at, towards the end of it. And my mumblings just started becoming talking about what we're doing to other people before we even went out um, to look for capital. And I think the aha moment came after networking um, through our friends, Reed and Eric, who run uh, So Good So You here in town. Mm-hmm. They know they've been a, on the show. Entrepreneur. Well, they uh, they're they're some of our really good friends, and they introduced us to a gentleman named Phil Soren. Phil is a successful tech entrepreneur here in town that had has had multiple exits, and I think it was talking with him, or having an outside voice say, "You're definitely ready to raise outside capital." That really was kind of the light bulb switch of, oh, "Okay, may, maybe this is like a venture capital track company that we're building." So, hmm. so how has so so you did that successfully? You raised how much? Just over $3 million. What, how did that change things? How did that change things for you personally? How did that change things for the company? It's added a lot of momentum and excitement, right? There's this phrase that momentum is the lifeblood of any new expedition. And, and a startup is, is no different, I think. But for the company, it, it added the capital for us to be able to hire ahead of need, to have more engineers than we need for the roadmap that we have, to allow us to think bigger and really to give this like big jolt and speed, the amount of product we've built in the last four months is three times as much as the amount of product that we've built in the year preceding it. So that poses its own challenges in coordination and efficiency and, and things like that. But I think another thing that has happened is that the culture that we've set of, of putting our people first, of hiring people that get along with each other, of not working with assholes, of like really trying to do really good things it's allowed for that to kind of calcify and become part of the identity of the company, which the effect for me is that I have this sense of calm that that going forward, at the very least, the ideals and the culture of the company will continue without me having to try very hard, which is like a very comforting feeling. I don't know how to describe it. So for me personally, that has been the case. And, and also, I'm, I'm doing very much less work. I'm doing less implementation work. I'm doing less data work. I'm doing less uh, you know, sales work. I'm doing a less of the actual work. And, and really just being able to um, evangelize and spew my ideas out into the world and, and internally. And, and that's had a really good effect both on the people that work here, but, but also on, on how everybody sees us. Hmm. I, I I think that's probably a, a scary feeling, especially for someone who's a real doer and worker like you to have that space. But it's really so important when when your job is to, like you said, be kind of seeing ahead and, and being innovative and creative. I have always told people that I really like making decisions, like I like playing games where decisions are a big part of it. One of the exciting and scary things is that the decisions are now large enough that they're scary and they're more important and they're faster. And I, I've enjoyed that quite a bit, but it's also been a, a big shift in like the way that I handle my own um, mental space. I, I think that I've been really lucky with how work has changed because of the pandemic and, and not to make light of a global pandemic, but being able to um, kind of focus a lot more of my time in a way that I otherwise don't think I would have. There's, for me, a lot more um, just free-range thinking time that I've been able to have um, that that I think has really helped me make better decisions um, and 
and, and I think that that transition wouldn't have happened as quickly or as smoothly um, had our work situation not changed recently. Interesting. Um, your team is entirely remote right now? 50% of us are here in Minneapolis, and um, people are here on Mondays and Wednesdays, and, and we have everybody really spaced out and, and, and doing testing, but the other 50% are remote. There's a locus of people that are working remotely out of New York and, and a few people in Boulder or the Colorado area and, and a few people in San Fran and, and in Texas. But um, by, by and large, um, a lot of the go-to-market team is here in Minneapolis and a lot of the operations team is here in Minneapolis and the engineers are the ones that are kind of scattered about. Sure. Um, I know that culture, company culture, is something that you think a lot about. As you mentioned, your no asshole policy. I, I'd like to know exactly how that works and how you implement that. Uh, how how do you how do you create and build that culture when you are spread out? Whether it's just being remote because it's a pandemic, or when you have people working in different cities. I think it's just making time for it. There's always going to be so much stuff to do and we're always going to not make certain deadlines and we're always going to let some things fall through the cracks. Um, being able to say no matter what, no matter what it feels like, we're all going to get together and play Among Us or Pictionary or uh, have a Taco Tuesday where we're all hanging out on Zoom for a while. We make time for every new hire to be grilled with silly questions from the entire team for half an hour to an hour. Um, <laughs> we talk about everybody that we lay off or, or terminate or who left. And we talk about all the good things that they've done and, and all the things that we could have done better to you know, hire more appropriately or to help you know, make them feel more welcome. And so it's, it's not all positive, but I, I think really what gels a team together is working on things overcoming challenges and being really transparent and honest with each other. And that isn't a cultural uh, value that's been here forever. It's, it's something that we've worked on and adopted over a long period of time and, and are still bad at it to some extent. But for me, I don't want a company that has hierarchical active management. I want a bunch of really smart people that want to build cool things working with each other and connecting with each other. I, I think of our, our company more like a cybernetic brain where each person's a neuron and I want to fill them with knowledge and experience and have them connect freely with each other to share information. And I don't think you can do that if you have one neuron that's just an asshole in the middle refusing to work with other people, right? It just, it just breaks down really quickly. So there, there is a, a practicality and a pragmatism to the dogma that we have. But um, I think that you can kind of already tell, you, you, have, you, you have to be a little less worried about whether people are feeling good as at being part of the team than you otherwise might need to if you had a, a really strong hierarchical organization. Interesting. Um, do you see this as a company that you're building to to run for years and years? Are you building this to to sell it to a larger company? What's what's your what's your plan? <laughs> I mean, we talk about this as a company a lot. Like if there was an, an offer to acquire the company where every single person based on their, their stock options would have their lives changed, I, I don't know that I would be able to say no to that, even if it isn't the intention. But I, I don't think you can have a child with the intention to sell that child off. Hmm. And so I would say that the, the goal here is to create something that is uniquely good and uniquely valuable, not to the outside market, but to us and to the market that we're serving. Um, and, and so we don't internally talk about acquisitions or um, you know, an IPO or something like that. We talk about delivering as much value as possible. And there's like a sacredness to that. 
but I would say that personally, I am trying to make this as much of a generational company as possible. I think that that's why the culture is important. If this was just an, a short expedition to go hunt a whale and everybody scatters after that, um, then then I think we'd be a very different. But I think this is 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 more about being opinionated on how we work and what we produce. It's a it's a, a hypothesis of of detail oriented tidiness and excellence and why that might be more valuable than shoddy workmanship. There's there's some philosophical hypotheses and statements that are being made in how we work as well. So and and do you see it eventually being something that perhaps where where you spread into different industries where you look beyond manufacturing? Is is that a path? Yeah, I, I think I think that we we started out too unfocused, right? In in the beginning it was every industry, every small business industry from construction to tourism to logistics and we 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 honed in on where we knew how to deliver the most value which is manufacturing and i think that focus is really what's gotten us to be able to deliver the most value but certainly as we grow as we build great things that have lasting value we'll have more resources and more power to expand to areas that that are really good but for now certainly the the, the short term focus is to really be the best piece of software you could possibly ever buy for the rest of the time in manufacturing um, and, and I think that'll lend credence to if we do and when we do expand to other uh, near field uh, industries that will have the reputation that we've taken care of our customers more than just built some software that made money, right? So. Right. As somebody who grew up in Minnesota who has been tied to the, the tech and computer world one way or the other pretty much your entire life, I, I'm curious about your perspective on how the tech community has evolved in Minnesota, you know, where we're at right now. Should we be proud and excited? I think we spend a lot of time comparing ourselves to Silicon Valley and, and feeling inadequate. How should we feel and what's your wish list right now for the tech world here? I think the only regret is that we lost our hold on technology for reasons that I don't think I'll ever fully comprehend with the collapse of control data and with other companies being acquired and and moving out of here. So I think that I, as a kid, would have imagined the prominence of Minnesota to be far greater than it is now in technology. Uh, I, don't, I don't know what the root cause of those are and, and how to avoid them in the future. But I will say now, I think we're seeing the first generation of kind of modern software companies like Code42 and Jamf and When I Work reaching maturity and their CEOs retiring or, or exiting the companies and starting new projects or working elsewhere. And so I think that first network effect internally of spreading operational and like belief knowledge around the community is just starting to happen. Like it takes somebody to come around and say, there is light at the end of the tunnel. There is treasure at the end of the rainbow. Keep going mm -hmm. to create that momentum that people will push past that painful threshold to actually get something really cool built. And I think that's just starting to happen. So that's really exciting. I think from a wish list standpoint, I, I think that people, I, I wish that people would think bigger. I think, I, I think that the effort it takes to build something small versus something big isn't as, as much as you might think. And the value that you deliver per every minute of the time that you're working on it is, um, is compounded greatly. And I think that for me, when I started out, I was really, really afraid to lose. I think maybe because it's Minnesota and our culture here, like the play not to lose mentality can certainly seep in quite a bit. There's a sense of like maybe cultural shame or, or whatever it is. But 
all the best decisions we've made have been from trying to play to win instead of playing not to lose. And I think that the turning point that we'll see here in the Minnesota startup space will happen when we have more people just playing hard to hmm. do something, even if you fail, with the with the VC backing here to start again. Uh, and I think we've seen more and more um, seed funds, uh, you know, Ryan and, and Natty from from Matchstick, who are investors in this last round, they've they've moved moved here and, and really invested a lot of time through Techstars here. Um, Bread and butter with with Mary Grove from the the, the Rise of the Rest Seed Fund and and Brett Roll who was part of the Syndicate Fund before here. I think there's just so much more going on here, and as there's more tech wealth that's created, I think that we'll see much more of it being put back into the tech community. And it's a flywheel that starts slow, but I think will grow pretty quickly. And we're we're at an exciting cusp, in my opinion, at least here in terms of companies that are started here. Yeah, yeah, that's great. Um, I, before we let you go, I just have to ask, I know you're no longer coding in your parents' basement, but does your mom have things to say about the software? Does she weigh in? Uh, she tries not to get involved. And when she retired, my dad joked about her joining the company as like a tech advisor, but she and I immediately said at the same time, no, um, I think that there might be, uh, you know, two strong personalities, uh, butting heads if, if she were to, to look at things here, but she's had some like sage advice, just little quips about how people work together and what works and what doesn't work. And, you know, her experience implementing Agile at a large corporation and small companies getting bought by big companies and what to look out for in terms of valuations. She lived through the dot-com bubble and, and had large amounts of wealth wiped away that were fictitious in her mind at first. So there's, there's some wisdom of the pain of going through situations where I can benefit from having that lens at least to look at problems with yeah. that has helped in a, on more of a subconscious level than anything direct. Yeah, well, that's pretty cool. That, that's a great that's a great legacy to, to carry on next generation. Well, Sunny Han, so exciting to see what you're doing and uh, can't wait to see what's next for Fulcrum. Thanks. Thanks for spending some time with us today. Happy to, to be here and thanks for having me. Well, Sunny Han is such a thoughtful leader. I love the way he thinks so holistically about business, about culture, about all of it. What can the rest of us take away from listening to his story of building Fulcrum? Let's get the academic perspective. Let's go back to the classroom with University of St. Thomas Opus College of Business. Lisa Abendroth is the academic director for Business in a Digital World at the University of St. Thomas Opus College of Business. Lisa, that seems like the perfect fit to talk about what Sunny is doing and some of the things that seem so obvious to us as far as being connected these days. Sometimes I think we're all feeling too connected. And yet he found this hole in the manufacturing industry. Yeah, so I love how he started out saying, I, as a consultant, was talking to manufacturers and really saw this gap. I got to see their pain points. Well, at the same time, I was looking at what was happening in social media and how people have the ability to be connected. We take for granted the ability to be connected, but this business, people weren't connected. Mm -hmm. And he really started with that focus on manufacturing and said, how do we build something that's intuitive and easy to use and doesn't cost millions of dollars, um, but has, has big impact? Let's go after the big problems, not just the little ones. He had that nice quote in there about, to me, this marginal value of time, go after the big problems because they're all going to take time to develop, but really focused on how do we deliver uniquely good and 
unique good and value to the market we're serving? How right. do we be better than the competition? Right. Um, you had mentioned that he started with deep insights in the field that he's in. And, and I love that he wants to go big. That can be kind of daunting for the rest of us. So, so how do you take that approach to starting something new? Well, it, part of what he talked about was talking with a bunch of other people. You just keep talking with people. You keep talking to your customer until you start to flesh out. And he's, you know, he talked about in the shower, what are we doing to other people? You just keep imagining it and working on it and fleshing it out enough till you go, I think I can do it. And I liked when he talked about no one else is doing it and it needs to be done and I hmm. want it to be done. So I'm going to do it. And I think you need that drive and to surround yourself with people that share that drive. Yeah, absolutely. And speaking of that sh shared culture, talk a little bit about that. Sonny has a lot of definite thoughts on culture. What do you take away from, from how he's forming Fulcrum? Well, he, he had the no assholes policy, which I've heard <laughs> elsewhere, but he builds on that. He talks about the importance of play. And I think we often take for granted that piece of it, or we think, oh, I'm not supposed to play because this is my job. But the Pictionary, the Taco Tuesdays, the silly questions, but they blended that with this reflection of, oh, if someone leaves, why are they leaving? Let's really be respectful of what we're doing here and how do we keep getting better? But also this shared sense of we're each a neuron in a, in a shared brain. Mm -hmm. We have to be cohesive. We have to communicate. We've got to be honest with one another. We've got to be transparent. And if you look back to his product, his product is trying to do that, too, by enabling people to communicate within their business, within their industry. Right. It all works together. But that culture came from his business, from his idea to his business, and now back to his, his product. Well, so important to think about that and not just think about the product in, in forming a, a company that's going to be successful. Lisa Abendraw, thank you so much for your insights. It adds a lot to the conversation. We appreciate you joining us. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you for asking. Absolutely. Thank you to our sponsor, the University of St. Thomas Opus College of Business. And thank you for taking the time to listen to By All Means. If you want to know more about the show or find the rest of the episodes, you can always go to tcbmag.com slash by all means. Teamwork to make by all means, and we've got some all stars. Thanks to our audio engineer, Tom Ferlitti. Digital support is Ricky Hannigan and Dan Nepo. Thanks to the University of St. Thomas Senior Media Relations Manager, Vanita Sakar, and Associate Dean of the Schultz School of Entrepreneurship, Laura Dunham, for all their help. Our theme music is by Songfinch. Hope you enjoyed by all means. Bye.